The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. I'll be reading from some selections of Micah 2 and 3. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Well, um, in case uh, you weren't with us last week, this is our... Second week in Advent, and to get us started here, I'm just going to go ahead and um, ask a pretty straightforward question, which is, uh, as it relates to Advent, what's it about? Like, what, what is Advent all about? And ultimately, I would say that Advent is about hope. And it's about hope of a very particular sort, hope that involves us uh, waiting and in a, a state of waiting for and anticipating the inevitable fulfillment of something that is particularly wonderful, something that has been promised to us by none other than God. And upon that Advent promise, we're called to fix our hope. We're called to fix our hope upon this promise. This is the big idea for this morning, Advent hope. But if you would, um, just think with me for a moment, put on your thinking cap, consider this. The very presence of hope itself, the very need for hope ought to, I think, alert us to a few things at least, because the very need for it implies that something is missing, right? Because we hope for those things that we don't presently possess. I mean, isn't this how hope tends to work, generally speaking? 
It involves waiting. It involves anticipating something that's still around the bend, something that hasn't come full circle. The very need for hope implies that something is missing, that something is lacking, maybe, even. And as it relates to this particular hope that I'm referring to as Advent hope, I think that it implies that something is indeed wrong. Something's wrong. That something desperately needs to be made right. And this describes not all of it, but some of what it is that we're hoping for during the season of Advent. We're hoping that something that is terribly wrong would be made radically right. Somehow. Somehow. And I'll say more about the the somehow of Advent a, a, a little bit later. Or you could say the object, the object of Advent hope will come to that. But for now, please consider this idea that in order for Advent hope to be all that it's meant to be, in order that it would be full, that it would be seen as something that is indeed wonderful and powerful and worthy of our eager anticipation, then it's absolutely critical that we take in the full story, which includes something terribly wrong, something terribly wrong with us, something terribly wrong with the world at large, which brings us back to something that uh, Michael Leary said last week here. If you were here, you may remember this. He, he talked about a eucatastrophe. That was a new one on me, by the way. I had never heard that before. A eucatastrophe. That's, that's one word, by the way. And um, in case you missed it, if you weren't here, or if you could use a refresher, because you're, you're probably thinking like, what? What's a eucatastrophe? A eucatastrophe is defined as a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story, a happy ending. Mike talked about the, the fact that this, you see this in all great stories. Um, as J.R.R. Tolkien put it, a eucatastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I hear that, I'm like, oh man, sign me up. I, I, that sounds great. Except for one thing. Maybe you were thinking this already. There is no you catastrophe without a catastrophe. You understand? There is no you catastrophe without a catastrophe. Advent, if we're understanding it in its fullness, involves both darkness and light. It involves both warning and and promise. It involves the proclamation of impending judgment. I mean, I'm sure you were hearing that as Kevin was reading, right? And, and the proclamation of the offer of the eventual, inevitable redemption and restoration of God. Both. And the truth is, we, I don't think that we can truly understand the one without the other. Can we? Can we do that? I mean, can we really have a clear sense of what the one is without the other. I'm just, to, to illustrate what I, I mean by that, I'm going to give several little illustrations. There's nothing like an intense, well-earned appetite after like a long, hard day's work, right? There's nothing like that to help you to enjoy and to appreciate a good meal. The one intensifies or improves upon the other. Or how about this? Here's another. So, um, see if you can relate to this. Whenever I get really, really sick, like bedridden, um, miserable, out of commission, tossing and turning, whenever the fever 
eventually breaks and I crawl out from under what feels like a rock, you know, and reemerge in the world, I always have like a newfound, can you relate to this? A newfound appreciation for my health, for my life, for my daily responsibilities, all of it. Like I was thinking about this because it was almost uh, exactly a year ago around this time that I got sicker than I think I've ever been. I was absolutely positively miserable. And when it was over, it was like a revelation to, to like reemerge in the world. It felt good to be alive. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or here's another one. When my wife goes away on a trip for several days, every time this happens, while she's gone, I get this growing appreciation for her. That builds up. And it's, I know why you guys are giggling. You're thinking, I know why you appreciate, appreciate her while she's gone. It's not just that those of us who are left behind find ourselves desperately scraping by until she returns. Although that's true. Okay. So that there's an element of that there. Um, but it's more than that. Every time it always highlights for me, it clarifies for me. It brings into focus the reality of the fullness of how much quality she brings to our family. So that when she returns, I'm just like thrilled to see her coming our way. Like, yes. And what I'm talking about here is it relates to Advent. This, the Advent component, it's quite different than what I'm talking about, but the same principle applies. The same principle applies. In order to understand Advent hope, we need the big picture that brings it into clear, vivid focus for us, a view that takes in the darkness, right? That takes the darkness into full view in such a way that we can begin to really, truly appreciate the brilliant light of the redeeming love of God seen in the face of Jesus as we anticipate him, as we anticipate him coming our way, as we reflect on the ways that he has come our way, as we anticipate him coming again our way. And I like how Dorothy Sayers put this, the thing I'm trying to say in so many different ways. She said, if men will not understand the meaning of judgment, they will never come to understand the meaning of grace. It's printed for you in your, your time of reflection. I'm going to say that again, just in case it's helpful to hear it. She says, if men and women will not understand the meaning of judgment, they will never come to understand the meaning of grace. If we fail to deeply consider and recognize why, why it is that we so desperately need him to come our way, then our hope will be puny. You understand? It will appear to us as something that is small and weak and bland and two-dimensional. And so before we take a deep dive into the object of Advent hope, which we will look at next week, before we do that, we need to pan out and consider the deep darkness that precedes the light. And so in great part, anyhow, that's, that's going to be much of what we're doing this morning. Now, before we do do that, I, let me just provide us with some, some context as it relates to the book of Micah, because we have not been in it for very long. In fact, we're not going to be in it for very long. But why Micah? Why the book of Micah for, for Advent? 
Here's a few things to keep in mind as it relates to this book. Micah, in case you don't know, he was, this is an Old Testament book. He was an Old Testament prophet who lived some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. He came from a place called Moresheth in southern Judah. In terms of timing, this was a time in the history of Israel when Israel had long been divided into two kingdoms. And so Israel was deeply divided, ununified. Okay, And at the time that this book was written, Israel had steadily lived in utter rebellion to God for some 500 years, it's estimated, in horrific ways, in horrible ways. And what we'll see here is that part of the reason for that had to do with the fact that they had terrible, terrible leadership, terrible leaders in a governing capacity, terrible spiritual leaders, teachers, prophets. They were cruel. They were self-serving. They were fiercely greedy. And that trickled down into the people for centuries, with some exceptions, with some exceptions, one of which was Micah here, who was a good prophet, all right? From all that we know about him, he was a good prophet and who served as a prophet for some 70 years. And get this, this I, I think this is super interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize this, or at least I had forgotten it. Um, there was another reputable prophet at the same time. Do you know who? It was Isaiah. Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries with one another, which I think is really is interesting because they were both prophets who God used mightily to proclaim very important, very clear, vivid things to us about the Messiah the coming Messiah. In fact, we did an Advent, Advent series in Isaiah. I can't remember how long ago it was. It wasn't that long ago that we, we, we did an Advent series in Isaiah. And Isaiah and Micah, <laughs> what they both do, similarities, is they both picture the Messiah for us as one who will be used by God to one day gather together, to regather scattered Israel, just like we're going to sing about a little bit later. We sang this last week too. You know what I'm talking about? O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, O come, O come, Emmanuel, in ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Okay. In fact, here in Micah, the Messiah, the Messiah is always pictured for us in Micah's words to us as a shepherd, is a shepherd of the people, is a good shepherd. We'll return to this before we finish. But the last thing I'll mention about Micah before I share an outline and we dive into this is that Micah in spades, we get the very same juxtaposition that I was talking about. Darkness and light, warning and promise, judgment and salvation. This is a defining feature of this book. And for us, as we grapple with the tension of these things, let's pray, okay? Let's pray that God would use these tensions, this juxtaposition to strengthen and intensify our hope, to develop Advent hope within us. So if you would allow me to do this, I'm going to pray, and then I'll share an outline with us, and we'll, we'll continue. Please allow me to pray. Father, would you minister to us by your Spirit, with your Word, God? Um, these are difficult things to grapple with. This is a lot to take in, but we pray, God, that you would be at work. 
would you give us the capacity to see um, the darkness in us, that we would just begin to take that in in such a way that it would cause the mercy and the grace and the truth of your son to just shine all the brighter in our eyes, that our hope would swell as we come to terms with that. So please be at work, I pray. You Use my words, God, um, to the degree that they reflect what's here. And to the degree that they don't, I, I just pray that they would fall away. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. An outline. Three things to consider. One, we're going to consider the depth of our hope. In other words, what is the substance of our hope? And I think it's a question for each individual here. As you, as you think about your relation to hope, the ways that you engage with hope, what's the substance of the hope that you possess? Okay. Second, we'll consider the arc of our hope, which is to say, what is the trajectory? What is the outlook of our hope? And then lastly, the heart of Advent hope. So again, the depth of our hope, the arc of our hope, and the heart of Advent hope. So to begin with, the depth of our hope. And by the way, this first point, this is going to be the longest one. The, the other two are, are going to be um, relatively brief. This is where we're really going to be camping out is, is the depth, depth of hope. Not the death of hope. Let's not do that. The depth of hope. Um, the thing about hope is that everyone's got it. Am I wrong about that? Everybody's got it. As I stand up here and talk about hope, I assume that everyone can relate because we're all natural born hopers. And one of the ways that I like to put this and have put this in the past is that we're hopeless hopers. We just can't help ourselves. We're just, we hope. Um, and we're all in the habit of frequently looking beyond, this is how I would put it, looking beyond the present moment to some other moment, daydreaming about some future moment, some future set of circumstances, imagining, hoping for an improvement of some kind. Isn't this what we're doing when we're hoping? This hope that we'll be more satisfied somehow than we are right now. That we'll experience an upgrade. Right. Like a better meal. Like, yeah, you know, I wish, I, I wish we could afford to, to make it to that other restaurant across town. I bet they've got, you know, I bet that beats this a better job. Right. A bump up and pay a better relationship, a better waistline. I've been thinking about that one lately. OK. A better you name it. Right. A better life. You know, we're looking into the future and we're hoping for a better now, which is this very ironic thing because we can only be in the now right now, right? But we want it. We want that thing. Whatever it is, we want it. We wish for it. We anxiously look for ways to get it, to bring it about. And sometimes we'll, we, we will go to extremes. We'll take risks to get it, to get that thing, to get that experience. We'll, we'll blow past people to get it. We'll neglect people we love to get it. We'll apply pressure and force to get it. We'll do all that we can to bring it about because somehow, why? We believe, that's why. We hope in, we're convinced that if we can just get that thing, that set of circumstances, that experience, that it will make everything better. 
somehow, better than the way that things are right now. We, we believe that. We trust to that. This is what we're doing when we're hoping. And so without hardly even realizing it reflexively, we endlessly place our hope in all sorts of things. Things that will inevitably disappoint us, that will fail to live up to the hype, to, to our own hype that we place on them. A small and silly example of this would be Christmas, all right? I, I can't avoid this. It's Christmas time, right? Um, I remember Christmas um, as a kid that uh, for me, I don't know, maybe this is just my personality, but there would just be so much buildup, like so much anticipation. I would just get so psyched. You know, like just chopping at the bit, just like counting the days, literally like, okay, is it 13 more days or 12 more days? And there was a lot to that. I, I, I really enjoyed everything about the whole entire season. But if we're being honest here, this had a lot to do with gifts, right? As a kid, this is not unusual. And the day would finally come and my family would set my brother and our cousins loose on these packages and we would begin to tear into these boxes and I would just hurry from, from one to the next. I would just like, my mom, my mom would have to be like, slow down. You know, she would have to like tuck boxes, like hide them because I would just plow through them and then she'd, you know, break out other ones. It's very spoiled, honestly, really was. And I would hurry from one to the next without noticing the thing that I had just unwrapped, without noticing the thing that I just uncovered. Like, there's no time. I got to tear through the next one. Like, what else is out there? Like, what, what comes next? What have we got? Just plowing through. And often when I was all done, my most common experience, when the dust had settled, and I hope that my parents aren't listening to this message because it is being recorded, but, you know, my most common experience was this almost unexplainable disappointment. Does that make sense? Just kind of like, huh, is that all? And it would be a pile of great stuff, but it'd be like, oh, done, that's over, shoot. I don't, you know, because I wanted some kind of, I don't even know how else to put it. I wanted to have some kind of like Christmas euphoria. Like I wanted to have a like a Christmas utopian experience or something like that. I don't know what was going on in my little head, but it just never delivered. It was always out of reach somehow. And this is often just on a very practical level, I think. This is often what our relationship to hope looks like and feels like. It's like a bad itch, you know. You can scratch it all you want, but it it just you can't satisfy the itch. It just needs to be scratched more. And sometimes, and you know this, this impulse to uncover something that will somehow like help to bring about the, the hoped-for reality that you're subjectively imagining, to scratch that hope itch, it often leads us into all kinds of trouble. That desperation. As it did for the Israelites, by the way. And Micah's dead. This is what we see here. Please look back with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. Micah is speaking on behalf of the Lord, and he says this. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out. Why? Because it is in their power to do it. This is very interesting what's being said here. Because it is in their power 
to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. This word covet right here, it's not a word that we use. It's very possible that there's someone here who does not know what this word even means, but I will tell you that you do know what it means. You might not know the word, but you understand what it is, okay? It means to strongly desire something. To think, I must have that thing. I must have that thing. If only I had that, then I would be satisfied. That's the thing that I've been hoping would come along. That's the thing that can scratch the itch of mine. That's it. But it's theirs. But I want it. That's what it means to covet. If you are familiar with the word covet, you most likely know this from the Ten Commandments. And by the way, it's the last one, which I also think is interesting. I, I think that it's almost a summation of many of the commandments that we get. It goes like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, which is what's being talked about in Micah, by the way. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, what is this? What is God saying to us? I think this is a, this is a kind, gracious warning on the part of God. The Lord is saying, these are not the things to hope in. Don't do that. These are not the things to entrust yourself to. They won't satisfy you. In fact, they will only bring trouble into your life, and they will cause trouble, not just for you, but for others. You will only reap darkness and destruction if you place your hope in these things. Don't do it. And yet we're so bent towards this particular kind of hope, and yet it has no depth to it. It's what we're thinking about, the depth of our hope. It has no depth, none. These things can't satisfy us. They can't liberate us. They can't save us. The dark art irony is that the things that we often think will liberate us often turn out to be the things that shackle us. The things that we think will set us free so very often are the things that tend to take us captive. In Israel, over the course of time, had developed a culture, a society that was built upon this particular brand of hope. And I know that it sounds odd to use hope in the way that I'm using it, but it's true. It's true because that's what we're doing when we cling to things other than God, thinking to ourselves that they will save and satisfy our souls. This is what we're doing. This is what all of sin is, by the way. It's the misuse of good things, treating good God-given things in the wrong ways while believing that they can provide us with what only God can truly provide for us. Hoping in the gifts, coming back to Christmas, hoping in the gifts rather than hoping in the giver of the gifts. Listen to how C.S. Lewis expressed this. This is a very big picture, panning out sort of an understanding of this. He says, all that we call human history Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, 
empires, slavery. He could have gone on and on and on. But he says this, all of these things, this is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Do you see? Looking for something that will scratch that, that ultimate itch, that cosmic itch. You see, this, this shallow, subjective, unsubstantive hope that the Bible calls a, a, a idolatry, it's the seed that produces all of the foul things that we encounter in the world. That we read about in our news feeds. And coming closer to home. <clears throat> like, this is the thing that, this is the thing that is producing all of the foul things in our own lives. All of the ways that we've mistreated others, all the ways that others have mistreated us. We're not immune to this, is what I'm saying. Look for it. I mean, look for this in your life. You will find it. And God is not indifferent to these things. He's not impartial. I mean, this is, this is really the majority of what Micah is getting at. They were planning and plotting and executing because it was in their power to do so, is what Micah tells us. And then God turns to them and says what? In verse 3, do you see this? God's like, you're planning, you're plotting, you're going places. You're trying to execute on your expectations and your hopes. You've got the power to do so. Okay. Verse 3, I am planning. I've got plans. I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You don't have the power for that. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity, we're told. Calamity. What kind of Christmas message is this, Doug? Come on. And this is honestly, this is difficult for me. I'm not, I'm just, I'm not lying because in a moment, at, at this point in a message, like I'm really, it, I'm itching to like bring in some, some kind of relief, some, some kind of resolution, but I'm not going to do that right now. I'm not going to do it because again, if we want to acquire or if we want to strengthen Advent hope, then we'll need to get acquainted with the darkness and the despair that makes this hope so very precious. We have to sit. We have to sit with the reality of what's here. If we're going to understand and appreciate light and grace, we'll need to understand darkness and judgment before a holy God. What kind of hope do you have? I would ask. What kind of hope do you have in the face of these things? This is the question that we should be asking ourselves. Like, whoa, this is, this is not good. What Doug's saying, what, like, what kind of hope do I have in the face of these things? Does it have substance? Does it have depth? So that was the depth of our hope. Now, briefly, the arc, the arc of our hope. There's more. There's more to it. We tend to hope in and attach ourselves to things that cannot provide us with the kind of relief and satisfaction that we hope that they will. This is what we just considered together just a moment ago. And very closely connected to this, we tend to hope in things that are well within our reach. In other words, we don't want to wait. We are hopeless helpers, by the way. You see? Helpless, hopeless 
We want relief, we want satisfaction, and we want it on the double. Quick delivery. Amazon Prime. McDonald's style. I've got this hope. Bring it in. Come on. This is, this is the way that we roll, which may explain why we change out our hopes regularly, why we change out our hopes the way that some people change out socks, just kind of like moving from one to the other to the next. We're restless and impatient. We don't want to wait. And we, I think that this reveals something, and it's that we, we, we are averse to real hope. We're averse to real hope. Again, hope implies that we're missing something. This is what I said earlier. Hope implies that we're lacking something. It informs us that something is terribly wrong with us. And so to sit with real hope, to embrace Advent hope, means that we must perpetually sit with the reality of our desperate need. Who wants to do that? This is what we're being called to. And we must embrace God's promises to us in the face of that need. And we must continue there until that hope is realized. And we are averse to this. How many of you like waiting? You guys like standing in lines? It's Christmas time. You guys might go out shopping, but maybe not because we could just order everything and have it sent to our houses that quick. How many of you like waiting? I don't. If I'm hungry, I don't like waiting for dinner. If I'm cold, I, I want to get in the warm house. I don't want to wait. We're averse to this because this kind of hoping is hard. Advent hope is hard. It's a long, long road to travel on. It requires patience. It requires perseverance. This is something completely different. We don't know about this. I mean, when we read, think about this. The book of Micah is an Advent book. It's telling us about the coming Messiah. And it was being proclaimed to a group of people who died without ever realizing this hope. You read Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. What's it talking about? It's talking about folks who hoped and died in their hope. They never got to see it. This is something completely different. And so, you know, what can encourage us in this, this hope? What can sustain us? What can empower us? I was talking about it being wonderful. Like, we haven't even gotten there. What can sustain us? What can encourage us to embrace this long, hard road of hope? And it's got to be, it's got to bring us into contact with the heart, the heart of Advent hope. This brings us into our, our last point, which focuses us on the object of our hope. And I'm going to try to be kind of brief on this because next week we're really, really going to camp out here. Please look back at um, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. By the way, there's no way that we could have printed all of chapter 2 and chapter 3 here, you realize. But the thing that I'll tell you is, of all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, which I would encourage you to read, these two verses are the only light we get. It's just a little beam of light that we get. And it's so important. 
<laughs> Verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who broke... The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. So what's going what's gonna to sustain us in this hope? What's going to empower us? What's going to encourage us to walk a long, long hard road? Some of you, I'm sure, have been wondering this. Do you feel, just personal question here, do you feel that you're in bonds this morning? It's talking about how we just we seek after these things that we think are going to liberate us, and then lo and behold, we just feel like we're getting tied up in knots. Do you feel held captive? Do you feel stuck? Do you feel barred in by sin? Do you feel stuck? in patterns that leave you feeling hopeless, hopelessly stuck, imprisoned in bondage. This is where we need to pair hope up with faith. If you read in Hebrews chapter 11 that I referenced just a moment ago, the writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is confidence in what we hope for, in assurance about what we do not see. The difference between all the hopes that we're playing around with and toying around with and the hope that's offered to us at Advent is that this isn't a subjective hope. This is an objective thing. This isn't the kind of hope that we tend to think about. This isn't, man, I sure do hope everything works out. Man, I sure do hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Man, I sure do hope. That's not what this is. This is an inevitable reality. This is going to come. And we're called to wait for it, to anticipate it. And we can do it, and we can do it for a long time, and we can walk a long way, because the, what we're hoping in is not a thing, it's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I was looking into commentaries on this, and looking at these two verses, they refer to him as the breaker. He's the breaker. He breaks through. Israel would be scattered, put into exile in Assyria and Babylon. This was their judgment. And God said, I'm going to bust you out. Do you feel held captive in sin? Look to the one who's the breaker. We're told he's he's the one who has come to set the captives this is this is our advent hope in the face of darkness in the face of this world like c.s lewis was describing it just a big hot mess we look to one who is sure who is certain who is out to break us out and how is he doing it he's going out in front he isn't following behind he's leading In the gospel, we're we're told that he laid down his life for his enemies. 
for those who didn't care a thing for him. He laid down his life. He allowed his, his light to be extinguished for a time that we might be brought in out of the darkness. Do you know this one? Is this the kind of hope that you possess, I would ask? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this meditation from the book of Micah. We thank you for um, this time of Advent. And God, I pray that you by your spirit would be nurturing us, that you would be at work in us, causing us to grow, to swell in this Advent hope. That our looking to, our anticipating, our waiting would not be burdensome to us, but that it would result in uh, a joyful anticipation, a sure expectation, for you are with us. And we give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.